Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I, I'm wondering if any of you do what I do when I'm alone in the car and a song I really like is playing. I start singing and I think to myself, man, I'm sounding good. <laughs> I, I, think, I think I can sing like that guy. And I wonder why my wife hasn't asked me to be part of the worship team. And then I get a dose of reality and I actually sing in front of my wife and she has to kind of cover her mouth to hide her amusement and, and then ask me, honey, why do you keep changing the key? That's not the melody. Why are you doing that? And then I sit behind people in church singing at the back of their heads and I actually have to ask people to, I, I, I apologize to them because I, I'm, I'm all loud and I go off key and I crack my voice, whatever. But you know what? When it comes to singing praises to God, I can't help but sing with loudness and with enthusiasm. And I especially, I really love singing praises with you, with this family of God in our worship gatherings, because you encourage me with your expressions of joy to Jesus. I love to sing because God gave his son to be the rescue for sinners like me. I deserved all the consequences of my sin. I deserved the shame and the regret and the pain. I deserved death and hell and the dominion of Satan. But by grace through faith in Jesus, I have been set free. And if you if you have turned from your sin and you have turned to Jesus in faith, trusting in his death to save you, then you are free too. And that is something to sing about, isn't it? Amen. But as bad as my singing may be, or your singing may be, does God like to hear us? Does he want to hear us singing to him? Oh, yes, he does. Yes. And one reason we know that is so is because the longest book in the Bible is a collection of songs. That's what the book of Psalms is. It was the hymnal of the people of God in Israel. And today we're going to begin a new series on the book of Psalms. Uh, we're probably going to stick to doing them in the summertime. That's why it's called Psalms in the summer. But we may do it at other seasons of the year. And if we do, obviously we'll have to change the name. You know, spring into the Psalms. Fall back on the Psalms. Psalms for the dead of winter. I mean, we'll call it whatever we need to. The Psalms were poetry set to music and were meant to be sung corporately by the worshiping congregation in the temple. The word psalm, the actual word, is taken from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it means a song sung with a harp. The Hebrew title for psalms is tehillim. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that word means praises. Bible scholar Gerald Wilson says that while many of the psalms express grief, over sin and suffering, the intent of them is to move God's people from that grief to a right understanding of God and his purposes, resulting in praise. The Psalms are quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book, especially to point to the life and the work of Jesus. 
So it has vast importance to us, especially because Jesus says that the book of Psalms and, and actually all the scriptures are ultimately about him. In Luke 24, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms may be fulfilled. All scripture points to Jesus. Every story whispers his name. And as a book of praise, the Psalms is meant to direct all of our praise ultimately to Jesus. So we're going to begin this series at the beginning with Psalm 1. It is generally agreed among commentators that Psalm 1 is actually the introduction to the entire book of Psalms. It gives the right mindset for how we are to approach the rest of the book. Remember, Psalms is a book of poetry. And as such, they give expression to beauty, to imagination, and to a full range of human emotions. Sometimes those emotions that we read in the Psalms are, are raw and uncontrolled. Part of why we, we so like the Psalms, we can identify with them. But those expressions are emo of emotion are meant to have a direction that move us toward right thinking and right living in the wisdom of God. And so Psalm 1 encourages us to look at all the Psalms as divine instruction on how to live well. As we prepare to to consider the message of the psalm, I'd like us to do something. As I said earlier, the psalms were meant to be sung corporately. But since we don't have the original music sheets, uh, I'd like us to at least read the psalm together with one voice. So I'm going to ask you to please stand with me. Up on your screen will be the words of the psalm, and I want us to read it together as a family of God. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask as we consider your word this morning that you would give us your grace, that we would drink deeply from it, that it would refresh and feed us, and that it would encourage us, it would move us to love you and to serve others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin to discover the dominant theme of this psalm, and really one of the dominant themes of all of the psalms, as we look at the first word of this psalm, blessed. 
in our Christian culture, we use this word a lot, don't we? The Hebrew word that is used here simply means happy. It literally means happy. I believe every commentary I read, every sermon that I heard on Psalm 1 agrees that happy is the best understanding of this word blessed. Now, sometimes, sometimes we can have trouble with this word happy because we think happiness is based on temporal circumstances or worldly pleasures. But that's not the case here. Biblical happiness is the deep good feelings that we have based on what? On who God is and what he says gives life fullness. The Greek counterpart to this word in the New Testament is the word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. We, we heard about that through our last series on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are the meek. Blessed eight times we hear Jesus used this word. And in these Beatitudes, Jesus is telling us what it means to experience real happiness, real life in the kingdom of God. And here the psalmist is doing the same. When the writer uses that word, he is calling us not only to discover what the truly happy life is, but it's an exhortation, a plea to be that kind of a person. He's saying, don't just know about this, become what I'm about to describe. And so as we look at the structure of the psalm, we discover that the writer is telling us how the happy life comes about. So if you're taking notes, here is the main point. You might just want to take a mental note. Here it is. True happiness is found in who we know, in what we grow, and where we go. True happiness is found in who we know, what we grow, and where we go. Now, I know all that rhyming can sound a little cheesy, but bear with me, because as I read and studied and reread the psalm, that's kind of what kept standing out to me. In the psalm, we see a, a series of three contrasts that depict two different sorts of people, two different lifestyles, two different existences. The first contrast has to do with who we know. That is, who are our closest connections in life. So this is not just about your acquaintances or casual context, but who we most closely identify ourselves with. With whom do we attach our hearts and our energies? And then he goes on to describe who that happy person does not closely identify with. He does not walk with the wicked or stand with sinners or sit with scoffers. Now, these individuals can sound pretty bad. I mean, you, most want to, you almost want to say it like, wicked, sinner, scoffer, right? We, 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 we imagine the most depraved and heinous individuals we can think of. But these are simply people who are living a godless life. God is not part of their worldview or their value system or their lifestyle. They may think, they may think that they know and believe in God, but the reality is always seen in how they live and what their lives produce. 
First of all, they are described as wicked. This word wicked refers to a person who is morally unstable and doesn't take God seriously. He lives according to the world's wisdom rather than God's. Secondly, they are called sinners. In the scripture, the word sin refers to missing the mark of God's holy standard. But sometimes when we hear missing the mark, we can think, oh, well, I tried, but I missed. Oops, no big deal, right? Actually, sinners who miss the mark do so because they deliberately deviate from the known will of God found in his word. They know what God says, and their response to him is, no, I will not listen. I will not do what I know you're saying, God. Pastor Kyle spoke on that just a few weeks ago, right? In the day of judgment, Jesus will say to that person, depart from me, I never knew you. And they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then lastly, they're called scoffers. Scoffers are people who express disdain or they belittle those who want to live righteous lives. So we, we, we see this progressive moral decline in these three terms. And notice how the progression happens. This person walks in the council, stands in the way, and then sits in the seat. To speak of someone's counsel is referring to their advice or their perspective, how somebody generally thinks about life. Someone's way is how someone behaves, how they live and act. And biblically speaking, to take a seat with someone was to identify yourself with them. It's to say, this is where I belong. These are my people. Their thoughts are my thoughts. Their ways are my ways. These are who the blessed person does not closely identify himself with. Now, does this mean that this blessed, righteous person has no interaction or, or no concern at all for people like this? Of course not. To do that would mean we'd have to take ourselves out of the world, right? All we have to do is look at the life of Jesus, who was called a friend of sinners, he was actually criticized for that. So why did he do it? Because Jesus loves sinners. And aren't you glad? He knew what they needed. They needed to know the truth about God. They needed to experience God's forgiveness. They needed to know what real life and joy was. And Jesus came for those who know they need him. How would anyone ever know about this good news if Christians never interacted with unbelievers? The, the psalmist's concern is not that God's people isolate themselves from unbelievers, but that they would not be so influenced by them that they adopt their perspectives and their actions and their identity. When we come to faith in Jesus, we, we really do need to take a serious look at who we're being most influenced by. That's the whole point of these verses. If we are undiscerning here, we can slowly and gradually be drawn into ungodly thinking, ungodly actions, and an ungodly identity. That was absolutely true for me. 
when I first professed faith in Jesus, I, I was regularly attending church. I was going to small groups. I was spending time with other Christian friends. However, I was still spending much time with those who had been my closest influences before I came to faith. And friends, they were not influences for good. I was somehow trying to live a sanctified life in the context of this close connection with godless people. And, and at first, I tried to be an influence for the gospel, but I was ignored or made fun of, and yet I, I still connected myself to them. Now, you can imagine what happened. As I continued with those friendships, I began spending less and less time with other Christians. What I knew was wrong thinking and wrong behavior, suddenly I began considering as permissible. I thought it wasn't too bad, was it? There I was, walking in the counsel of the wicked. If their thinking or their behavior wasn't so bad, then perhaps I could join in with what they were doing. I was now standing in the way of sinners. I eventually began to spend almost all my time with these unbelieving friends, and I put my heart and my energies into who they were and what they did. I now identified myself most fully with them. Friends, I was sitting in the seat of scoffers. And God in his mercy let me experience the consequences of my moral decline so that I grieved over it. And listen, I didn't grieve just over my circumstances, my consequences. I grieved because I had let God down. He was the one who really loved me. These others, they didn't. Jesus did, and he gave his life for me. So Jesus mercifully was drawing me back into close communion with him. Because then, when that happens, then my obedience would be based on love on the one who I knew really loved me. Which then brings us to who the happy person does connect himself to. We read in verse 2 that this blessed man delights himself in the law of the Lord, and in God's law he meditates day and night. Now, now you may think to yourself, wait a minute, Pat, this isn't talking about someone. Isn't this all about who? This isn't someone, but something, right? The law of the Lord. The word for law here in Hebrew is Torah. And in its broadest sense, it refers to all the instructions of God. Now, this instruction is essentially the revelation of God himself to us in his word. It's God letting us know who he is, what he's like, what he's done, what he says about us, and what he requires of people. So the law is all that is true about God. But, but listen, it's not just instruction about God because it's through his word that we supernaturally experience God himself. In John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Meaning what? Connect yourself to me, live in me, let my life flow through your life. And then he tells us how that's going to happen. He says in John 15, uh, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So when we hear 
the word, when we read it, when we interact with it, when we meditate on the word through faith, we are interacting with God himself. That's how we know him. That's how we experience him. So when the psalmist says that the happy person delights in the law of the Lord, we know that that person is delighting in God himself. Let's think about this delighting in God for a minute. For the blessed person, the, the word, time in the word, is not just ritual or dry discipline. To the blessed person, the word is something wonderful and attractive, so much so that the one who gives us the word becomes our greatest delight. Now, but you may say to yourself, you know what, I, I'm not sure if I'm really delighting in God and his word as I should. In fact, sometimes I feel like it's a bit of a drudgery to me. And besides, you know, I'm, I'm doing what God says. At least I'm reading it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying hard to obey. Isn't that enough, even if I don't really delight in it? Our founding pastor uh, used this illustration a, a number of years ago, but I think it would be helpful to hear it again. It says, think of a married couple getting ready to go to sleep at night. And the husband says, as he leans over to his wife, he says, must I always kiss you goodnight? And the wife responds with, yes, you must, but not that kind of must. He's asking, is it my duty to kiss you every night before I go to bed? And she says, of course it's your duty, but it must be a duty of delight. You see, there has to be both. God commands, really, he commands us to delight ourselves in him, to serve him with gladness, that we would desire him and delight in him because it's in him alone that we find our greatest joy. He knows that that's where true obedience springs from. Remember, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He's concerned about our hearts and where our obedience comes from. Now, some of you may think, well, does that mean that I have to wait until I'm feeling the love? Until I'm really delighting in Jesus before I can really obey? Do you know what the, the Apostle Paul would say? May it never be. Of course you must still obey God. That's part of who we are as Christians. But you cannot be satisfied with a dull-hearted obedience. Because that kind of obedience can never be sustained. Never. Remember the husband? He must kiss the wife. It is his duty. But he must also delight in the kiss and in the one he kisses. Otherwise, it is not love. And the Apostle Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Never settle for dry duty, friends. It must be connected with delight. So if you're not delighting in him, if you're not delighting in his word, what do you need to do? I say the first thing you need to do is admit what your lack of joy really is. It is sin, and you have to repent of it. God commands our delight because he knows that he's truly lovely. He knows that that's where our obedience is going to come from. If we're not delighting, it is truly sin. 
confess it and repent of it. Secondly, pray. Admit to God your need. Your need for him to do this massive work of grace in your life. Ask him to help you see him as he really is. That he's truly lovely, truly worthy of praise, truly worthy of your wholehearted service. And then act in faith and do what you know is right. Obey. In particular, do what the psalmist says that the blessed man does in verse 2. It says, he meditates on his law day and night. Now, this is an interesting word, meditate. It literally means mutter or mumble. Mutter or mumble. He's saying, talk to yourself. Speak out loud and mumble God's word. Do it again and again. This is a perfect biblical picture of preaching the truth of the gospel to ourselves. And don't just do it mindlessly. Of course, think about what you're muttering. And to do that, friends, you need to be hearing God's word in his church. You need to be reading it alone with your families and with the people of your church. You need to be talking about it with your families and with those in the church. You need to be thinking about it and believing what it says. All the while, while you're doing that, you're asking God to reveal himself and the beauty of who he is to you. So are you delighting in it? I struggle with it. I have to ask God over and over again, help me to see you as you really are in every part of your word. Are you delighting in it? Are you closely connecting yourself to God through the word? If you are, and as you do, something wonderful is going to happen. And if you're not, something dreadful will happen. Here's where we come to the second contrast in our psalm, what we grow. We've talked about who we know. Now we're talking about what we grow in verses 3 to 4. This is the outgrowth of our closest connections what is the fruit of your life? The happy person produces good, pleasurable things from his life. Verse 3 says that he is a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Now notice that the tree is planted. It's not a, some kind of wild plant growing somewhere. It has been deliberately placed by those streams. Because the wise gardener knows what the tree needs to make fruit. When we first um, bought our house, I decided that I would have a garden. I don't know what I was thinking. Because I am a lousy gardener. And our soil is lousy too. So I tried. I tried to kind of beef it up with peat moss and manure and fertilizer. And please don't give me any gardening advice when we're done. Because I'm not doing it. Um, I tried to remember to water it. I tried. Um, but I was never really too upset if I didn't. You know why? Because I could run to the Acme anytime I want and get the produce that I needed. Anytime. It never really bothered me much if the garden didn't do well because my survival did not depend on it. Right? If it did... I would absolutely make sure that I water those plants or I place them near a constant source of water. 
I would weed the garden, I would fertilize it, and if there was any sign of disease, I would call someone who has better gardening skills than me to come and help. I would make sure those plants would flourish and grow the fruit that my family needed to survive. And you would do the same. This is really connected to our first point. Have you planted yourself in the word of the Lord? Are you striving to make sure that you are delighting in God and that your spiritual life is watered by that word? Are you pulling up the weeds of sin and temptation that could choke your growth? Are you looking to other believers in your church family to help you recognize the danger of spiritual disease and to help establish you with deep roots in your faith? Are you? Really, are you? Because, friends, there is no spiritual acme to go to to get a quick spiritual fruit fix. There isn't. If there's no steady, deliberate care, then anything that might give you a quick fix is going to quickly lose its appeal, and you will still be an unstable tree. And good fruit does not grow on malnourished trees. It simply doesn't. But verse 3 tells us that the person who is closely connected to God, delighting in the word, will always yield fruit in its season and its leaf will not wither. You know what that person is like? That person's life is like a fruit tree growing in Guatemala because Guatemala is called the land of eternal spring. Right? That tree will never experience the fall season with leaves dropping. That tree will never go into winter where there is dormancy and no fruit. In fact, it says that what, listen to this, this is pretty incredible. In fact, he says, whatever that person does, he will prosper. Really? Does that mean that everything will always go well for the true believer? Does that mean a trouble-free life? We don't have to look very far in our congregation this morning to see that there are many, many who are experiencing deep hurts, debilitating sicknesses, great discouragement, tragedy within, without, tribulations within, temptations that are burdensome. So does everything really prosper for the believer? Is this psalm telling us the truth, or is it just a sick joke, really? What we need to ask is, what is this blessed person prospering for? Is it to prosper according to the world's idea of prospering? Which is what? The world wants fame and beauty and wealth and success and health. Is that what it's for, or is it something else? Remember, this psalm and all the psalms are pointing us to living a blessed life, a life well-lived in the kingdom of God. And so for the person who is sick this morning, can they delight in God and obey his word from a heart of love? Yes. Can the discouraged person trust God's promises 
and continue to grow in the knowledge of God? Yes. Can the tempted person look to God for help? To turn from the path of sinners and to be conformed to the image of Jesus? Yes. Can the deeply hurting person turn to brothers and sisters in the church, to other righteous, to help bear their burdens? Yes. Can all these people who are knowing deep trouble live life well in the wisdom and the power of God? Yes. See, it's, it's not, we're not able to do it. We need God to do it in us. And so, yes, if their delight is in God, they will be rooted in him, and he, God, will make what they do prosper for his glory in his kingdom. Yes, they will prosper in all they do. But what about the wicked? Those who do not delight in the Lord, they do not meditate on his law, what will be the fruit of their life? Nothing. Nothing worthwhile. Nothing of any lasting value. All that the wicked can ultimately produce is chaff. You know what chaff is? Chaff is the, the dry outer covering of a grain of wheat. And what they do is, in, in Israeli threshing floors, they throw the wheat down, they pound it, and then they take these forks and they throw it up in the air. The, the wheat falls to the ground, the chaff just blows away. There's nothing permanent, there's nothing nourishing about the chaff. It is completely useless, and its end is destruction. And that brings us to our final contrast in verses 5 and 6, where we go. Where do we go? What's the final outcome of our path in life? The wicked, it says, will end up unable to stand before God in the day of judgment. Maybe you've heard the phrase, you don't have a leg to stand on. What does that mean? You have nothing to support yourself in your current position. In the context that we're reading, the ungodly have nothing to support themselves when it comes to the presence of God. All they have to hold them up is chaff, friends. It won't do it. That person will utterly crumble under God's righteous wrath. And at this point, I have to ask this question. Who is that person? Who is that who's described as the wicked, whose life's outcome is worthless chaff, who will not stand in the judgment? Who is that man? Who is that woman? It is every man and every woman, every one of us, everyone. Please know that this psalm is not talking about people who are really, really heinously evil and bad versus the pretty good people. It's not much talking about. How do we know? Because the scripture tells us that there is none who is righteous. There is no one who does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wicked is every person, you and me. But who is the righteous person described in the psalm? It's only one person. It's the God-man, Jesus. He is our way to be made right with God. And it's by faith in him that we can live in a way 
that results in true happiness, enabling us to stand with the congregation of the righteous. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we receive this righteousness? By faith. The Bible tells us that Abraham, who is the father of all true believers, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You understand what's happening here? Abraham had no righteousness on his own. He was a mess just like all of us. No righteousness on his own, but he believed God's promises and God declared him, he made him righteous. It was based on faith. God says our sins have separated us from God. And when we recognize our sin and our need to repent and believe, God does this amazing thing. He takes our sin and the punishment for it and he puts it on Jesus. Jesus always lived right. It says he had no sin and, and death is the penalty for sin. He never deserved to die, but he did die. Why? Because he takes our sin and punishment for us right? That's an amazing thing. But then he does another amazing thing. He takes, God takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and gives it to us who believe. So that on the day of judgment, we are able to stand before God, not because we are so good, but because Jesus was good for us. That's amazing. We are, our sin is cleansed by his blood, and then we are clothed in his righteousness so that we can stand on the day of judgment. In the end, the psalmist is telling us that there's really only two ways to live. There's no middle path. There, there, there's no place where we sort of believe in God and then you know, do whatever we want. There's only one path, or only two paths. One leads to barrenness and destruction and the other to happiness and fullness of life. Today, some of you know that you're walking in the way of sinners. You have no real regard for God and his ways. Maybe you have a lot of worldly prosperity, but spiritually you only have chaff. Maybe you're even or have been a faithful churchgoer for years and you fooled others and yourself about where you really are with God. God says we have to listen. God says you will not stand in the day of judgment and your way will perish. But the word also says this, to all who receive Jesus, to all who believe in his name, meaning what? We believe in his name. We believe all that he is. We trust him as Savior and we follow him as Lord. That's what we ask today at the baptism. To all who believed in his name, that person he gives the right to become children of God. Do not run from God, run to him and receive his forgiveness. Today, if you're a believer and you're not feeling very blessed or happy, you're not delighting in God much, you're, you're not growing much spiritual fruit, then I implore you sometime today, it can be the end of the service. It can be when you go home. Get before God and 
beg him to do something. You're thinking, ah, oh, I gotta beg God? Really? Doesn't he know what I need? I gotta beg him? You know what supplication means? Beg him! Beg him to do something in your heart and don't stop asking till he does. And all the while, get yourself into the word, meditate on it, asking God to help you see what he's really like so you will be delighting in him. Remember where you were without grace. And remember how he has clothed you in his righteousness. You see, we're, we're not compelled to obey so that we can make ourselves righteous. We're compelled because God has made us righteous and we want to live righteously for him. And don't do it alone. Tell another trusted believer what you have told God. They'll pray for you. They'll encourage you. They'll give you a spiritual smack when you need it. Tell somebody else. And today, maybe you're in a good place. Thank God for it. But then also, ask him to give you each day his daily bread. You know what that means? Give us this day everything that I need. Physically, spiritually. Don't ever think that you don't always need help. Confess your utter dependence on God and your need to delight in Him. And maybe you know someone who's struggling, a professing believer, and, and, and they're, they're kind of struggling, and, and sometimes we can get critical. And we can even disdain them in our hearts. Don't do that. Don't do that. Oswald Chambers says, discernment, when we, we see something that's not going right in a believer's life, says discernment is never a call to fault-finding, but always a call to intercession. Pray for others and bring them along with you. Bring them along. God, through the psalmist, is telling us who the truly happy man is and how we can have a truly blessed life. He is urging us to be that happy person. Why settle for anything less when he has offered you infinite joy? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we wrestle and we struggle with so much and we get distracted and we get pulled by things that lead to chaff. Oh, we need you. We need your help. I need your help. And I pray that as we hear this word and as we consider it and as we talk about it and as we pray about it, Lord, that you would move us day by day, not just a spiritual fix today, but move us day by day to delight ourselves in you, to know you through your word, and that you may make us truly blessed in you, truly happy in you, thereby glorifying you in the world and knowing deep joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.